One, two, one, two, three, four. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. We're excited about our new sponsor. Um, this episode is being brought to you by Outreach, the leading sales engagement platform, which triples the productivity of sales teams and empowers them to drive predictable and measurable revenue growth. By prioritizing the right activities and scaling customer engagements with intelligent automation, Outreach makes customer-facing teams more effective and improves visibility into what really drives results. Thousands of customers, including Cloudera, Glassdoor, Pandora, and Zillow, rely on Outreach to deliver higher revenue per sales rep. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. It's your host, Sam Jacobs. I am delighted to have on today's show a good friend of mine, someone I consider a mentor, a founding member of the New York Revenue Collective, and just an all-around great guy and one of the most respected sales leaders in the New York metropolitan area. So we've got Dave Govan. He's a VP of sales currently for Pentaho Solutions, which is part of Hitachi Ventura. But really quickly, let me tell you Dave's background, his very impressive background over the last, must be, more than 20 years, but he'll tell us. First, he ran his own consulting firm, G2 Strategic Advisory Services, before joining Pentaho. He's also been Chief Revenue Officer at Dynamic Yield at SailThrough. He was SVP of North America at VeriSign. He was SVP of Sales and Professional Services at Juice Software. He was an area VP earlier in his career at Net Perceptions in the personalization space, and he's also uh, been a kick-ass contributor at Oracle and at DEC. So welcome, Dave, to the show. Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here. We are excited to have you, my friend. So why don't we start off really quickly with your baseball card so that everybody that's outside of the New York tri-state area can get to know you a little bit. So your name is Dave Govan. Give us your title. Sure. I'm a VP of sales at Hitachi Ventara for Pentaho Solutions. So how big is Hitachi and how big is sort of your purview for Pentaho? So Hitachi Ventara is a $4 billion technology company headquartered in Santa Clara. And we are part of Hitachi Limited, which is an $82 billion global conglomerate. That's big. And how long have you been doing the, the startup thing, how, or at least the sales leadership thing? Sales leadership, uh, 20 years. I've had a really exciting mix of early stage companies and public companies. You know, it's always interesting for people that are earlier in their career, if they want to be CRO at places like Sail Through, where we've had a, a guest, Cassie Young, who you know, and places like Dynamic Yield, we always like to know how you got there. So tell us your origin story. Tell us where you came from and, and how we ended up speaking on the phone today. Sure. So I'm actually from outside the industry. I'm from a family that uh, I grew up in a busy family restaurant environment in a rural part of New Jersey on the border of Pennsylvania and decided to take a different life path than I think my parents desired and went off to college and earned a degree in marketing and computer science and uh, was always very excited about technology. So hence, I joined the tech industry quite a while ago was really focused on the people aspect of the business and really love the commercial side. So I went into tech sales. So what was your first job out of school? So I joined uh, DEC when I was really young. Uh, at the time, it was the second largest computing company in the world. And uh, we were competing with IBM and HP, et cetera. At the time, it was probably around $8 billion a year when I joined. And when I left, it was around $14 billion. 
And were you selling mainframes? Is that right? What was the thing that you were selling? Well, DEC revolutionized the industry with servers, really. IBM was known for mainframes and as a, a several other companies. A DEC was a pioneer in the space, sort of like the Google of its day, and had brought around Ethernet and client server and uh, lots of really great innovations. We had about a $2 billion professional services business, around a $3 billion software business, and the rest was servers, hardware, storage, printers, et cetera. I was really fortunate. I kind of lucked out in that I wound up in large enterprise sales as a very young person and uh, went through an extensive training period there, six months in the field and, and in classroom training. It couldn't have been a better starting ground for me in terms of uh, learning the tech industry. Did they have SDRs back then? Sort of how did they bring you into the organization yes. before the advent of kind of like the modern uh, sales architecture? Yeah. So they didn't really have uh, SDRs per se. They had, you know, marketing functions, but they did have sales training programs. So they were always looking for young college graduates or folks with a couple of years of experience that they could bring into what they called a more of like a sales development program. And uh, you were given a role and a mentor and, and an assignment and you basically learned and you sold and interacted with CIOs and directors in IT and business. And then they invested in continually in your training and growth, and uh, you, you could rise to whatever level you wanted to pretty much. So, and then, so you went from there to Oracle, is that right? Yes. It's always interesting for people to hear about the path from individual contributor to ultimately to manager. And I know after Oracle, it looks like that was the moment that you made the jump to VP. So, you know, walk us through that evolution. And I guess, what are the things that you think you did particularly well that enabled you to make that transition from, you know, individual contributor to manager? Sure. That's a great question. So Oracle was really starting to take off when I joined, was recruited into Oracle. I really liked the software side of the business uh, when I was at DEC, so it was very attractive to me. And also the reputation for higher incomes in Oracle was pretty well known, which is something I was interested in, of course. And so I transitioned over to Oracle and did very well there. Uh, I think it was in my second year, I was actually Global Account Manager of the Year. I received an award from Oracle's Executive Committee. So I showed a lot of, I had been selling for a while, you know, I was at DEC for eight years. And so I had a lot of experience that was very relevant. And I was able to translate that experience at Oracle, uh, as well as my large account relationships and uh, really, you know, hit stride there. I also learned a lot at Oracle, really about, you know, software business practices and, and uh, you know, the sort of sales process side of uh, enterprise software sales. And so it went really well. And I always had a desire to grow in my career. And I really like serving others. And any effective leader knows that at the end of the day, it's really all about your team and your customers. And so I had the mentality and I I think that my management recognized that. So coming off of like a really great year, I received a double promotion to a regional manager level. It's like a first level VP. And uh, I was pretty young at the time. I didn't really have much training in the way of management or leadership at that time, but I just jumped into the role and, and ran at it. That's good. Well, you're there at Oracle. How long were you at Oracle? And I guess, you know, one of the things that's always interesting is they give you that double promotion. And then, you know, fast forward in time, and you're at places like Sailthrough and Dynamic Yield, which are more classically what we would, I guess, consider startup companies. Obviously, Oracle is not a startup. So how did you think about making the transition from, you know, big company to startup? 
And now, now you're back at a big company again. Walk us through, you know, there's a lot of folks out there that are, that are working for early stage companies and thinking about how to manage their careers. How do you view the differences between a big company and a startup and what are the advantages, disadvantages of each? And how'd you make your way through all of those sure. decisions? So I was at Oracle for five years in total to answer your first question. And, and I'll just answer your other questions kind of in, in one complete answer. So any business that I've led, I've always kind of just looked at it as an entity, right? Whether the entity is part of a large corporation or whether it's part of a startup, it has its own unique needs and requirements. And what I try to do is basically do a bit of planning up front to make sure that that organization is targeted at the right you know, sort of prime suspects and the right segmentation for uh, what is being sold. And that principle applies in large companies and it applies in small companies. So targeting is the first really key. Where are you going to focus your people and your resources? And then secondly, what, what's the messaging you're going to market with? Often in large companies, the messaging exists and you just have to customize it a bit for your particular target vertical or geo or what audience level from a title perspective. And in startups, you have to create that messaging or work with marketing people to optimize it. And then it's the question of how you're hiring great people, same need in both situations, large or small. You have to have great people on your team, training them, supporting them, being in the game with customers, helping move sales uh, opportunities forward. And in and all those sort of back office approvals, contracts, all of that. So you would find actually much more commonality between uh, large companies and startups than I think is obvious. There are pros and cons to answer your last question of working in each type of environment. And I can go into that in more detail if you want. But um, I see a lot of commonality there. Tell us the pros and cons, because again, lots of folks are there in the world are coming out of school and they're SDRs at early stage companies, and then they move up to account executives and they never get the kind of uh, true classical enterprise sales training that you get. But from your perspective, what do you think the pros and cons are? Sure. Well, you just mentioned one of them, training. Larger organizations tend to have more resources to train younger people. And I've met many really talented, highly intelligent young people that when they receive professional training, they really excel. And you can tell the people who have been trained versus not trained. So training is definitely one key resource. And another is actually sort of breadth of opportunities. When you work in a large company, it's not actually much easier to get meetings for, you know, for your teams to get in front of customers. We're all competing for their time. And if you're not good at that, you're still going to struggle, whether you're in a large company or small company. But having a brand is very helpful. There's no question about it. When it comes to sort of the vendor viability, vendor credibility sale, people really make the difference there. And so in a startup, you have to have people on the leadership team as well as on your staff who can establish personal credibility, professional credibility, instead of just that kind of large brand credibility. So those are some of the differences I've experienced. It's political in both environments. So I think there's a bit of a misperception that, you know, there's less politics in startups. And I've experienced heavy politics in startups and also in large companies. I think that collaboration and teamwork also exists in both environments. I've seen it fairly equal. So I think there's just a lot of sort of, you know, more in common than there is uh, different about it. I would say one other main difference too with large companies is the uh, indirect channel. So most large companies have established partners 
which can be very critical to the success of the sales organization or any organization that's looking to move forward in terms of satisfying customers, professional services, sales, pre-sales, et cetera. So that's definitely an advantage, a distinct advantage in a large company is having a formal alliance program, partners. Usually there are quite a few people that actually their full-time job is to manage that business and help sales link with partners and, and work opportunities, et cetera. And that typically doesn't exist or it's nascent in a startup. But each job I found fulfilling. I found it very fulfilling in startups, collaborating and breaking new ground for the first time and you know, helping founders execute on the milestones with the board. And then in large companies as well, just helping my organization and working and teaming with other organizations to win you know, strategic opportunities or accounts or compete and win. So I've enjoyed both. That makes sense. You mentioned something that's interesting to me. You said there's politics in both types of organizations. I think there's a lot of different definitions out there for what politics means. What does it mean to you? To me, politics are basically biases and opinions and interaction between people that are a distraction to the primary objective of the function or the people. So it's sort of like that human, like we're all human, we're all imperfect in certain ways. So it's those imperfections that come out where people form alliances or biases or whatever that basically sometimes work against the common good. Uh, that's how I would describe it. To your point, I think the easiest definition I use tends to be when decisions are made on non-objective bases. And not because it's related to preferences, not, you know, I like this person more than that person, not because we have right. a metric that we're measuring. Yes, I think that's well put. The um, thinking about startups, because you just, you've, you know, you've worked at a lot of them and you've seen some succeed and some fail. What are some of the biggest lessons you've learned from your time at startups and high growth companies? Oh, there's so many I could talk for days. I mean, it's really, there's a ton of them. I can talk about what I've seen contribute to success versus failure, if that you think is relevant. I think that would be very relevant. Yeah. It seems like when startups get going, they're, you know, they're heavily focused on the core product or, you know, products, right? And that's natural because obviously come up with an idea to innovate in society or in business and someone has a brilliant idea and then gets funding. And that person often is a product oriented person or an engineer or someone like that. But there's this whole other commercial aspect that is heavily dependent on a strategy. And the strategy is executed through something called a market map. And the market map starts with the voice of the customer and then goes through about five or six aspects all the way through to marketing and sales execution. And anyone, uh, listener can Google it and uh, see a classic market map. But I've consulted for dozens of startups and have worked in several. And every single case, the market map was not there. Some of the concepts within the market map were there, but overall the market map was not in existence. And the market map actually keeps you honest. It's like a nautical chart. If you're sailing somewhere, you chart it out in advance and that's the course you're taking. Of course, you make adjustments for weather, but for the most part, that's the course. And without that, it's very easy to stray off course. And that doesn't mean you don't create a new course. Sometimes if you discover something along the way, that's you know more exciting and bigger. Like I totally get that. But even when you do that, you should still go back and create a new market map or revise your market map. So trying to get somewhere without a market map and the whole front office aspect is really problematic. 
So I think the companies that have been really successful are the ones who have that. What are the most important elements of the market map when you see companies go off track? Is it that they haven't defined their ideal customer profile? Is it that the messaging is off? I'm sure all of, there's a million factors that contribute, but are there one or two that are the most critical to get right? I think it's really the starting point with the voice of the customer. And because think about it this way, unless what you offer addresses acute pain for someone in power, it's not going to succeed. So someone in power in a business has to be able to uh, feel that, wow, if I spend time and money on you know, evaluating this and buying this solution, it's going to resolve this acute pain or help me grow in, in some way. I think in many cases, people fall in love with their inventions and that's missing. And then sort of mapping out the whole solution design to that and with like looking at competitive vulnerabilities, for example. So you create differentiation into the solution design, et cetera. I think that's really key. So it's, in other words, the sales and marketing execution are critical. However, they're only going to be as effective as the front end of your strategy. And the front end of the strategy is product development, right? Is that what you're saying? Well, it's the voice of the customer into product development, the solution design, right? And then going from there is absolutely key. Because if you misread that or make false assumptions, like I had a client once who basically market tested their product in the SMB space and then went up market immediately to enterprise. And their assumptions were off because enterprise had different requirements than SMB. So what they thought was really innovative and novel turned out to be passe to their enterprise buyers. Yeah. That's a classic mistake, which is if they were going to build an enterprise product in the first place, they should have started there. That's right. So you have to be careful. And it's not easy, right? Because we're all proud of our work, right? And if developers or engineers, product people spent all this time and effort and money getting this amazing technology together, it's easy to fall in love with it. And it's, you know, they're a baby and the baby is always beautiful. But it's really important as early as possible to get that external validation and, you know, make sure that you're on course that way. Yeah, I agree. You mentioned something else that's super interesting that you and I have talked about individually, which is, you didn't say it this way, but but the point is clear, which is it's not just enough to solve somebody's acute pain. You need to solve somebody's acute pain that has power in the organization. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of folks out there in the world that have, you know, mastered the simple sale, which is find a champion, get the deal done, maybe because it's a mid-market deal. Yes. But the complex sale is very, very different and you're a master of it. Walk the audience through some of the key elements, the power components and how to think about building preference for a solution at the enterprise level because you've done it so well and so repeatedly. Sure. It's actually more straightforward than one might think. It takes a lot of just basic empathy and common sense, but but a little bit of planning, not a lot, just a little. You know, the first guiding principle, and it's a mantra that I created years ago, which is the only plan that matters is power's plan. So you can ask anyone in my organizations and over the years, and they'll laugh and chuckle and tell you they've heard that a million times. But it's really true. The only plan that really matters when you're selling to a enterprise is power's plan. Everyone else's plan doesn't matter because power is the ultimate decision maker and approver of your opportunity, right, of your contract. So you have to make sure that you are in a situation where you can gain access 
to power and you can verify all the different uh, conversations that your team has had with other people with power. Getting back to the point with complex sales, you can boil it all down to a very straightforward approach. So in my organization, for example, the first thing I ask them to do is make sure they have a qualified opportunity. We use medical to do that. And that, that that's a really good filter. So you have that filter. Really quickly, Dave, only because, yeah. you know, got a lot of newbies out there. What is medical? Uh, tell us what medical stands for. So it's it, it's an old qualification, you know, acronym, but it basically it's metrics that your solution satisfies the metrics that a buyer and their power wants to achieve. It's the economic buyer. So you've gained access to the economic buyer, which in this case, I'm using, you know, the slang term power. It's the decision process that you've identified, the decision criteria. It's the identification of pain as having a champion and then a linkage to the business. And there's a few filters out there. I, you know, back in the day at VeriSign, we used uh, value prompters, pain, fit, value, power, and plan, which is similar. I think medical takes it a little bit further. So you just want to make sure your opportunities are qualified for that. And that's an ongoing process. It doesn't happen in one conversation. It takes, you know, multiple conversations and meetings and uh, to filter based on that. But that's only part of it. That still doesn't really get to uh, complex sale, selling or power-based selling. After that, then you have to, the next step, which is pretty straightforward, is you have to map out the stakeholders. So the stakeholders are who are the individuals that are involved? What's their job title? And then really take a objective look at their preference for your solution, the power level they have in the decision-making process for this project right? Any particular agendas, business agendas that you've been able to identify, and then the pain type that these different uh, individuals are experiencing. For example, is it operational pain? Is it financial pain? Is it strategic pain, et cetera? Imagine a matrix that you map out with these individuals. Now, in the very beginning, there's many answers you don't know. So you just leave them blank, call them blind spots, whatever you want to do there. But just note that those blind spots need to be filled in at some point. Because if you're going to go about the process of influencing the preference across this power base, you have to know who the targets are, right? Like who are you going to actually reach out to and figure out where they are? And then the third step is the plan, the actual complex sales plan, you know, the power base selling plan, a Holden, where you're now taking actions as a team, not an individual, but you're leveraging your manager, you're leveraging your VP of sales, you're leveraging your head of consulting, you're leveraging your CTO, you're leveraging your founder or CEO, maybe your COO if it's a larger company, whatever the power base is, your SEs for sure. And you're basically the account executives acting as a quarterback, so to say, mapping that team into the power base and brokering meetings with you know C-level people, with C-level people and VPs with VPs just to gain a perspective on where those customers are coming from, like what their desires are for this particular project, and then to influence them toward what you're selling. Or if they're like too far gone and they're married to the competition for some reason, then neutralize them. Just, you know, agree to disagree and move on. So there's this whole selling process of working through that. Now we don't do that on, and I don't recommend anyone does that on every single sales opportunity. If you have a simple opportunity where really there's two individuals involved, a buyer and their manager, and it's a lower average order value, you don't need to go through all of that. But if you have a strategic opportunity where you're cracking an account for the first time open 
or it's a larger you know, order value, then it's absolutely worth taking the time to map out a strategy and a plan and team sell into that environment. And this is like a tried and true approach. Uh, we used it recently in my organization and basically generated an incremental half a million dollars in, in license support and services off of a, a customer who wasn't really looking to do much more with us because the account executive got to power, brought me in, brought the head of consulting in, brought his manager in, had uh, the right SEs involved and identified a strategic opportunity and then worked the power base accordingly and, and was able to you know, close an incremental half a million dollars, uh, which we normally would not have had it, had he not followed this approach. One of the non-obvious dimensions of this process, or at least it's not obvious to me, is how you think about the different types of pain and how there's certain types of pain that actually aren't interesting enough for uh, for a solution to be implemented, meaning a sale to be made. Yes. Walk us through that framework. Yeah, that's an astute observation on your part. So unfortunately, much of our sales training is feature-based. You sort of newer reps memorize all the features and capabilities, and then it's like an actor who's done a great job of rehearsing. They get on stage and they kind of just, you know, tell what they know. But unfortunately, many of the power players that you call on, they actually don't have operational pain that's linked to those features. So in technology, many of the features uh, link to operational, solving operational pain. But if you move upstream, uh, there could be cultural pain, there can be financial pain, and then strategic pain. It's easy to define those types of pain because they're, it's just business, right? So, you know, strategic pain is, hey, I'm losing market share to my, head com my chief competitor because my organization moves slower. So if your solution helps them get information faster and uh, get better insight into the decisions they're making to compete, maybe deliver product faster, you know, innovate in R&D quicker, uh, increase their pipeline in R&D, then you're actually going to affect strategic pain, right? And sometimes the pain is financial, which is the CFO or controller's pain. Hey, I'm, I'm bleeding here. I'm losing a significant amount of money. And your solution happens to reduce cost internally significantly. And then cultural pain is, hey, I have, you know, in some cases, you might have a situation where there's a lot of bias in my company and there's a lot of, you know, harassment issues and I need to really deal with that. And you might be selling something that uh, helps educate people on dealing with unconscious bias and educates them to become upstanders when it comes to diversity and inclusion, right? That, that's an example of addressing cultural pain. And of course, operational pain is what it is. It's just like, hey, you know, it, it takes us too long to execute X and Y or, you know, this product is um, not getting the job done for me. There are gaps here and there, you know, what have you. There's a million examples of that. Yeah. And, and part of your point, if I'm not mistaken, is, you know, operational pain is typically uh, experienced by people that may be champions, but don't actually have a lot of decision making authority within the organization. That's absolutely right on. And that's why many opportunities die on the vine, because the sales team has done an amazing job of linking with operational pain. But there's a gap at the senior level with power because they haven't been able to translate how that solving that operational pain actually will address financial or strategic pain for the CFO or for the CEO or chief risk officer or whomever. The job is basically to realize you have a mixed audience who have different types of pain and you need to translate your solution 
to each audience type so that you're communicating to each audience in their own language the benefits of how you address each of those different pain types. That's when you have 100% alignment and, and can't lose. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's really, really helpful. So, you know, you've been doing this a little while, not too long. You're not that old. You're pretty young. You're young of heart. Thanks. Check is in the mail, Sam. Thanks. Oh, do go on. You were dancing with a drink in your hand. So what advice, you know, you're reflecting back on the last 20 years. Obviously, you have a point of view on things that have helped you and things that have not helped you. What advice would you give to the folks that are starting off in their careers? Sure. I've been listening to Hamilton a lot recently, the soundtrack. And, uh, you know, when Berg gives Hamilton advice, which is uh, talk less, listen more. And I think that's very valid for folks who are coming up, right? And I was guilty of it back in the day. And sometimes I'm still guilty of it. But I think the opportunity to listen and learn from customers and board members and investors and management and colleagues is just, you know, such a valuable asset to us that I think uh, that's an opportunity that really we don't want to waste, you know, just being able to gain the perspective of others and observe that before we stress our, our points of view. And I think also, just like I mentioned it before, professional training and experience, I, I'm so enthused by the younger members of my organization and also that I meet in the industry. And uh, one of them asked me recently, what would you recommend I do? And I said, well, first of all, you're doing incredibly well already. This person has closed the round as a founder, uh, probably, he's probably in his late 20s, early 30s, and closed a round for $119 million recently. That's a very large round. Yeah, you're doing tremendous already. The only thing I can think of is really invest in professional training in any gap areas that you haven't experienced, like, for example, uh, negotiate contract negotiation or value-based selling or effective presentations or, or whatever it is, right? Just invest in the professional training because it's worth it. It will pay off in your career. And then secondly, put yourself in situations where you can have as many experiences as possible. I think that is really key to growing. I couldn't imagine what my life would be like now if I didn't have the opportunity to have all the different types of experiences I've had to date. It's just been invaluable to me. So Raw talent and high intelligence are amazing assets, but they're not substitutes for professional training and real world experience. So I always encourage folks to do that. That is a, a point well made. I've got some fairly tactical questions because, again, I think there's a lot of folks out there that are running, uh, you know, 15, maybe $50,000 deals and they always aspire to the enterprise. But, you know, it's rare that we get somebody with your experience that we can just ask the questions to. So organizational design. We don't need to know how many people are in your org, but, you know, what are some ratios? Like, what are the roles that you have that you go to market with that help you execute your plan? So let me answer that from a startup perspective, because I think that would be more relevant. When I'm hired as a startup CRO, I need to establish a lead gen function. I need to establish uh, some type of field marketing because I, I firmly believe events are one of the most critical uh, most effective ways to actually engage with the right audience. I think that there was a statistic recently from gong.io. It used to be five to seven attempts to engage with a prospect, and now it's up to eight to 13 attempts. So think about that for a second. Eight to 13 attempts per SDR, per AE to get a suspect to engage. 
that's a tremendous amount of effort. I think if we're able to get really hyper-targeted when it comes to smaller events that, you know, like the, uh, I'm a big fan of beret dinners and those types of events and, you know, boutique uh, conferences. I think that, that that goes a long way. Not that we'll stop the, you know, SDR function by any means, but it's just, you know, another way to do it. So there has to be that, uh, in addition to lead gen, there has to be a, a good field marketing effort, you know, when you're bootstrapping a company. Then, of course, depending on the technology you're selling, you may need SEs. So certainly you need, you need reps, right? And depending on what you're selling, you could need SEs, uh, sales engineers, you know, technical engineers who can interact with customers who have a sales attributes. Depending on how technical your solution is, that will de- determine the ratio. So I've gotten away with like one SE to four AEs in less technical sales, and then in more technical sales, one-to-one ratio SE to rep. What's your SDR to AE ratio? So usually I think one AE to two SDRs or to three SDRs is really a good range. I've stretched it to four and that has caused a lot of stress and I wouldn't recommend that. And again, it depends on the, the nature of your business and how much you know, money you can, you can invest. And then sales operations, once you get going, you know, when you're, when you're starting to roll, then you need a good sales operations person. I think in the beginning, you could outsource that. There are a lot of quality subcontractors around who can help you uh, with your, your CRM capability, but you got to get going right away. Some companies make the mistake of not paying attention to it until like two or three years in. And then it's just this like crazy Gordian knot that you have to try to <laughs> cut through and figure out. And it just like really causes a lot of pain. So you're better off starting and having a professional helping you there in part-time. So those are really the core functions. In some models, you don't need professional services. You just need like really great customer success. And in other models, you need customer success and you need professional services consultants to go on site and implement. So those are two other critical, you know, sort of front office functions that you need. And then when you get going and larger, then you look at renewals. And so the way I've always approached that is I've had strategic renewals handled by field AEs and I've had kind of, you know, basic renewals handled by a renewals manager and, and then adding a team as time goes on. So those are, I don't think I'm leaving out any functions. Some former team members might yell at me if I do, but I think I covered them all. That would imply that they're all listening, which would be great given all, all of your experience. Some really quick uh, sort of specific questions. What percent of a pipeline do you think an AE should generate on their own at the enterprise level? So, you know, you've mentioned to me before, if I'm not mistaken, your version of enterprise, we're looking at a quota of maybe 2.4 million, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. What percent of their pipeline should come from them doing outreach on their own versus their SDRs or marketing? How do you think about pipeline contribution? As much as we can get from marketing or, you know, SDRs, the better off we're going to be. but it's often just not the case. So, I mean, realistically, what I've seen is anywhere from 25 to 33% coming from those functions and the balance of the burden being on the account execs. There's just no, in large enterprise B2B, there's just no substitute for that type of account executive that can actually call on power, call on mid-level managers, call on you know, evaluators and find projects and find opportunities and get introductions from partners or, you know, other colleagues or people that they've known before. It just doesn't seem like there's a substitute for that. Obviously, as a sales leader, I would love 
their contribution burden to pipeline to be as low as possible so that they're just focused on qualifying and, and managing opportunities and winning them. But it's really just hasn't been the case that I've seen in startups and large companies. You know, I think back at way back in the day when I was at Oracle and things have changed. I've been out of there a long time, but uh, the primary burden was on the field to generate pipeline. And I think it's pretty common across large companies today. That makes a lot of sense. Last question before we sort of get into some final parting words of wisdom. But if you're thinking about your tech stack, we're always comparing notes. So, you know, we don't want to be uh, negative in any way. We want to celebrate the great companies that are partners of yours. So what are the companies that are in your tech stack? What are some tools that, that you really can't live without? Sure. In my tech stack, I have Slack, Outreach, Salesforce.com, Exactly, Greenhouse, LinkedIn. It's a tough question on what I couldn't live without. Really appreciate all of those technologies and you know and other ones I'm considering right now. I would say honestly, probably LinkedIn. If I think about power-based selling, you know, complex sales and the amount of intelligence we gain from LinkedIn, that seems like a critical asset that we couldn't we couldn't live without. Uh, obviously, we're you know heavy users of uh, all the other office automation, email, texting, etc. But the I think of that account intelligence and you know persona intelligence that we get about suspects on LinkedIn, company news, uh, the ability to connect with people that just seems like a killer app for us right now. Very good. I like LinkedIn too. On there often uh, inundating my my legion of followers with annoying statements. I'm one of them. Yeah. Well, thank you, buddy. It's okay. I enjoy it. Throw me a like every once in a while. Last question, you know, a content that you consume that, you know, makes you better or books you're reading or podcasts you're listening to or methodologies. What are some, if we want to keep following the breadcrumb trail and, you know, get as good as Dave Govan or get some new ideas, point us in some directions. Uh, yeah, I read all the time. I try to like, I subscribe to the feeds that are coming across social media for different types of businesses and sectors you're, you're in. So I would say that the you know first rule of thumb, if you're in a particular market, obviously a no brainer, you should follow people who are writing in that space and, and receiving the latest goings on about that space. I, will, I also do listen to Bloomberg quite a bit as well when I'm driving around. And I think that gives you a healthy kind of global view and domestic view of what's going on in the greater economy. So when you are calling on C-level and VP-level people, you know, you're aware of the general trends and, you know, happenings in the various industries that are out there. So I find that, that that's kind of a really good media source for a variety of information on from a Bloomberg perspective, Bloomberg radio perspective. For personal pleasure, I actually try to avoid technology just to give some balance in my life. So I don't really read a lot about tech. I'll read occasionally some primer books, but uh, most of my reading is really about history. And I really uh, enjoy, there's an author, Ron Chernow, who writes biographies. I'm reading a book now on Ulysses S. Grant, which is fascinating. But it is great. And uh, I heard the new Grant biography is amazing. He's one of my favorite people. Yeah, it is awesome. Awesome. Listen, Dave, thank you so much for contributing to the podcast. I think the lessons that you've imparted around the complex sales process and how to really deliver an enterprise sales methodology that works are, are incredibly valuable to the listeners. So 
thank you so much for participating. And I'm sure I will see you very, very soon at future gatherings of the New York Revenue Collective. Thanks, Sam. It's been awesome spending some time with you. I think this is great and really enjoy these podcasts. I encourage everyone to uh, listen to them. They're very informative. So thanks again for your time and have a great rest of your day. I will. One last thing, Dave. If people want to get in touch with you, are they allowed to? Is that okay? And uh, if so, maybe because you're hiring or maybe because they're seeking mentorship or for any reason, what's the best way to do it? What's your preference? Sure. few choices can friend me on LinkedIn. It's Dave Govin, and just mention the podcast, and I'll be happy to accept. You can reach out to me via Gmail, uh, djgovan, G-O-V-A-N, at gmail.com. So those are two choices. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thanks. Take care. Hey, folks, it's Sam's Corner. I meant it when I said that Dave Govan is a big influence on me and a big mentor. And a lot of the processes that we've designed here at Behavox have been strongly influenced by Dave. So I think he said something and, and I reiterated it in the conversation, but I want to underscore it. We talk a lot about pain, but there's different types of pain. An operational pain tends to sit within and below the power line. And so what I mean is that the people that experience sort of inefficiencies in their daily workflow that is not always important enough for the CEO or a C-level executive at an organization to sign off on. And you really need to figure out what is the pain that the power has that the solution can solve. And as Dave mentioned in the podcast, the, the only plan that matters is power's plan, which means that many, many times in an enterprise sale, a deal can get killed because you've got a champion below the power line that's enamored of the solution or the product but that enamorization, if that's a word, doesn't appeal or doesn't speak to the goals of the C-suite. And those are the goals that are most important for your solution to impact because that, those are the people that have the money to sign the check to pay you for what you're trying to do. So think about moving above the power line and speaking to pain that resonates with the C-suite in the organization if you're working on an enterprise sale. Thanks so much for listening. To check out the show notes, see upcoming guests, and play more episodes from our incredible lineup of sales leaders, visit saleshacker.com slash podcast. You can find us on iTunes or Google Play. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do share with your peers on LinkedIn, Twitter, or elsewhere. We always love it when we see people sharing content and telling their friends we've been growing every month, so we're super excited about it. Thank you. And finally, special thanks again to this month's sponsors at Outreach. See more at outreach.io forward slash sales hacker. Finally, finally, if you want to get in touch with me, find me on Twitter at Sam F. Jacobs, which unfortunately for you uh, may be overburdened with uh, political and uh, Washington Capitals related tweets. But if you want professional correspondence, find me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash Sam F. Jacobs. I'll see you next time. <laughs>